Good morning. Yes. Good to have you with us. You guys doing well? Excellent. A few of you are. This is our Braveheart teaching series, Courage in a World of Compromise. Living among idols is what we're talking about this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 2. We'll be looking at, uh, we'll start at verse 6 of chapter 2 and work our way to chapter 3, verse 6. I want to start off by asking you a question here to think about because it has to do with the topic. Uh, What are the idols, the counterfeit gods, the pseudo-saviors that compete for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from God? Have you ever thought about that? What competes, what competes for your deepest loyalties and affections away from God? What are those things in your life? This, this truth that, uh, that I encountered a number of years ago was the most uh, life-changing for me. And um, it was the most freeing for me. It has really helped me to deal with a lot of inordinate uh, anxiety, anger, and depression in my life. And if you're struggling with uh, a lot of negative emotions or uh, are just really wanting life change, this is where it's going to be found. Uh, it's going to found in understanding uh, this idea of, of idolatry and what competes for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. Take a look at your sermon notes, part of the intro. As Israel fought their way into possession of the promised land, we must fight on toward maturity and fullness of life, defeating anything that would stand in the way. Now, what we learned last week, next next thought, we, we learned this last weekend, it wasn't that Israel could not, but they would not drive out their enemies and therefore now are living among idols. And we saw that in Judges chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 5. Nothing can rob you of the fullness of life Christ came to give to us except, except idolatry. Nothing can rob you of the fullness of life that Christ came to give to us except for idolatry. Idolatry is at the root of all of our sins. All human problems are ultimately symptoms. So think about this. All of our human problems are symptoms and our And our separation from God is the cause. And what is it that separates us from God? Typically, it's unbelief, pride, and idolatry. We'll talk about those three here in just a bit. And so we, uh, like Israel, are living in a land of idols. We are living among idols, and so we're going to address that. Let's begin with a word of prayer before we uh, take a look at this text and unpack these notes. Father God, our hearts... Our, our idol factories, and we, we live in a culture that endorses and celebrates our idolatry. We pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to take a serious look at what competes for our heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from you, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we become so happy in Christ that sin loses its appeal, making us more and more wholly devoted to you in all, in all that we think, we say, and do 
for our incomparable joy and your indescribable glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. So, so the text we're looking at here, uh, Judges chapter 2, starting at verse 6 all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, gives us, it's really the second introduction. We looked at the introduction last weekend. It's the second introduction and a summary of the whole book. It gives us the cycle and the decline the cycle of decline and revival that you see throughout the book of Judges, but it's also, you see this in the nation of Israel, but you also see it in our lives. So it really reveals a lot of what goes on in our lives when we ride the roller coaster in our relationship with God. And so let me begin reading Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, didn't we already talk about Joshua? I thought he already passed away. Well, this is a, we're kind of reviewing that here. And so when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen, this is important, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So full devotion to Christ, covenant relationship, they're taking hold of what is theirs through the promises of God. And then it says in verse 8, And Joshua the son of Nun and the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Erz, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Now this is where it really becomes very depressing. And uh, this is a tragedy that I'm about to read here. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That is a tragedy. And that's what we're experiencing right here in America today. There's a whole generation that's growing up that does not know the Lord or the work that he has done for us. Now, let me give you part of this, and you can see I gave you the, we're going to work through this text, you know, verse by verse, and then we'll give you some points. And I, I made it easy, kept it easy for you last week. I hit you hard with a whole lot of stuff, but this week it's pretty easy, all C words. They start off with C words, and so this is kind of the, the cycle of decline and revival. And so it starts with covenant, covenant relationship with God. God and his saving acts are infinitely valued and central to my life beyond anything else transforming every part of my life. That's what we saw in verses six through seven. So the, the people there following Joshua are loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, loving their neighbor as their self. This is what they live for. This is what's true about those that are fully devoted to Christ. God is my highest treasure, my deepest pleasure. You know, in Christ and all that he's done, that's, that's normal Christianity, full devotion to Christ. We, we define it here at Desert Breeze as the five G's. You guys familiar with that? If you've not taken the game of life, you need to. We'll be offering it again in the fall. But the five G process to full devotion to Christ, what's the first G, anybody? Genuine. So a genuine Christian is someone who's committed to Christ and to a church family, and they make that public through water baptism, had a big baptism party a few weeks ago. And so you got a genuine Christian. If you're a genuine Christian, you're going to be what? What's the growing? You're going to be growing. You're going to want to study God's word, pray, get involved with other Christians. It's because you want to grow in your relationship with God. So genuine growing, giving is the third one. So it's a natural overflow of your life. You want to get involved in the church. 
a church family, you want to give of your time and your talent and treasure, it's just a normal process of full devotion to Christ. Then the fourth G is a what? It's going. So genuine, growing, giving, going. Once you've tasted a fellowship with God, you want everybody you care about to know it also. And that would pretty, be pretty much anybody you come in contact with, okay? And so, uh, so that's going, and you heard of all the going that's going on here at Desert Breeze through Darren and his announcements. There's a lot going on here. We love it. And so, but we do all of that for the fifth G. Why do we do that? To, for glorifying God. We want to glorify God. It's not about us. It's about him and his, his glory. So that's that covenant relationship. God and his saving acts are infinitely valued and central to my life beyond anything else transforming every part of my life. I must, I have to guard that, otherwise the next step in this uh, cycle of decline and revival is complacency, and this is what we saw happen with this next generation. So complacency is this, this is what you need to guard against. It is a disposition of dismissal or indifference to desiring God or delighting in God. So it is this disposition or dismissal of dismissal or indifference to desiring God or delighting in God. Now, it could be a sign that you've reached your emotional, physical, or spiritual limit. You're gonna certainly become apathetic about God if you've reached your emotional, physical, or spiritual limit. How many have ever experienced that before? You're just like, ah, right now God's not really that important to me because I'm just really wiped out. I just need to recharge. And so that could be the case. Or it could be something much more sinister and so we see this happen in this, this whole next generation. The, the thing that I'm talking here is something more sinister. What are our three enemies? Turn to the folks next to you and see if they can name one of these three enemies. We've been talking about them over the last few weeks. What are one of the three or all three of these enemies? Real quick. Those three enemies are found in Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And uh, what are they? Yell them out to me. The world, the flesh, the devil. The flesh meaning our sinful nature. And the devil, we have an adversary. And so we've got three enemies. So uh, the world, the world's values. The values and the kind of the system of this world that is, uh, you know, it's God ignoring it's the air we breathe in our culture today and wants to pursue anything and everything other than God. And so that's what we're contending with and that's the sinister thing that's happening in our life because this is normal Christianity. Romans 1.16 is normal Christianity. What's Romans 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Yes! Awesome. See, that's normal Christianity. It's like, yes! Oh my goodness! What Jesus has done for me! Oh my goodness, not only, not only have I got a hold of it, but it's got a hold of me. And so your heart's filled up with the beauty and the glory of who Christ is, and, and it's natural for you want to want to share that with the next generation. And I put it on your notes, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. That's verses 4 through 9 and verses 20 through 25. That's how we are to do that. That's how we are to impact the next generation. Now, Everybody listen up. Those of you that are parents and those of you that are adults that are you know, around kids, you need to know this. We, you know, we seem to be so preoccupied with making sure that our kids 
you know, have athletic and uh, academic prowess, you know, that they're, they're successful in those areas. And one of the things that I see that oftentimes good parents do is they neglect the spiritual well-being of their kids. And I can take you to, to families' homes and parents' homes today that are heartbroken over the fact that their kids are very successful athletically and academically out in the world, but they don't know the Lord and their heart is broken over it because that's the most important thing. So this whole, we don't know why this whole generation doesn't know the Lord. And it could be the parents, it could be the kids. Because I've seen kids grow up in a really good, healthy homes and they go south. Because kids have a free will and they can make a choice. And so that can happen. I think it's a little bit of both. But this is what we want to do, and this is what Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and 20 through 25 is talking about. It's talking about saturating our lives with the Word of God. It's giving our kids a vision of the breathtaking beauty and captivating glory of God that ruins them for anything else. That's our hope. That's what I want for my kids. I want it for my grandkids. I want it for every child that comes through Desert Breeze, is to give them a vision. By the way, you can't give what you don't have. And so you need to have that, first of all, as an adult, as a parent, to be not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Be convinced of that deep within your heart and living that out, and then you'll be just naturally passing that on to the next generation. I was just told this last week, uh, some of you know who Tom and, uh, Tom and Jody Sikrovsky is, uh, who they are, and they, uh, they've attended here for many, many years and they have a house full of kids, and they've got uh, two little twin, boy and girl, five-year-olds, and apparently, they've been going to their preschool and really consistently telling all of the kids in their little preschool class, all these five-year-olds, about Jesus. Isn't that so cool? And so the, the preschool teacher, one of the preschool teachers was so impacted by that that they went to Jody and said, Jody, what, you know, what church do you go to? Because I want to go to a church that teaches these kids so much about Jesus. Because it's evident that these kids are saturated with Jesus and want the, want the world to know about Jesus. And I'm going, yes, awesome. Because that's what we want to do. We're not here. Uh, they're not doing babysitting back there right now. They're pouring Jesus into the lives of our kids. All the way from real, real, real small to, to real, real, real big. And that's really, really, really important to us. That's what we're about. We want our kids to know Jesus, to walk with him, to know him, to not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, let's continue reading. So it goes from covenant to complacency, and it gets worse here because of complacency. Verses 11 through 13, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The word Baal is a Canaanite word for Lord. In verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord. Notice how descriptive these words are. The God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. I mean, it's almost kind of like this is a shock. Can you believe that? Why would you abandon God after all he's done for you? And the, and the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. They just didn't abandon God, but they went after other gods. It kind of tells you a little bit of our makeup from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. Very descriptive of idolatry here. 
And they provoked the Lord to anger. Ooh, I don't like anger. I don't, I don't believe God gets angry. I don't believe in an angry God. I, I hear people say that from time to time. Well, my goodness sakes. It's in Scripture, but it's probably not the kind of anger that you're thinking he gets angry. You know, that temper tantrum kind of anger. That's not what this is. This kind of anger is of a parent whose kid is running out into the street and going to get hit by a car. That's that kind of anger. How many know what I'm talking about there, okay? Yeah, that's, that's a good kind of anger. And, um, and so that's why he's angry. And then look at verse 13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So this new generation did not know the Lord or his works. And it probably does not mean that they did not know about the story of Exodus and the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan and the walls of Jericho falling. But rather... The saving acts of God were not valued and central to their life. I mean, you can know all the stories. You can recite the stories. But if it's not central to your life, it's not in the core of your heart, it's your highest pleasure and treasure, it's not going to transform your life. And uh, as you've heard me say this before, if the beauty of the Lord and his works for you doesn't take your breath away, something or someone else will. If the cross of Jesus Christ doesn't take your breath away, something or someone else will. And, um, and this, this happened within a generation. One generation. You know, we're one generation away from extinction. That's why we put such emphasis on our kids here. Christianity is one generation away from extinction. And that's why it's, we put such emphasis on our kids. Um, I had, uh, my wife and I go to uh, Speed and Strength University where we train, and uh, the guy that uh, owns that is Drew Bohannon, who attends here with his uh, wife, Nicole. And, and I was chatting with him not too long ago uh, about, uh, we were just talking about different things like that, and he was really excited, and he told me about what they had watched recently in uh, one of their small groups. And he reminded me of a visual aid that it had been a while since I had used this. And I had a few folks here recently say that anytime I use visual aids, it's always really helpful for them. So I thought, okay, I'm, I think I'll use that visual aid again. And it was from a Francis Chan video that they had watched. It was a really helpful uh, um, visual aid. So I wanted to use a visual aid to kind of help you to understand what was going on. And what do I have up here? Anybody? Fishing pole. How many enjoy fishing? I don't. <laughs> and uh, I mean, if I want fish, I'll just go to Rubio's and buy a fish taco, okay? Uh, because, uh, and I think it's because I got, I always get skunked. I, I'm clueless when it comes to fishing. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. And, and who wants to sit out there all day and get sunburned? And you do? Okay. There's a few of you like that. You enjoy that. But, uh, but anyway, what's fascinating about fishing is that there's some interesting verses found in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. It says that when someone is tempted, they should not say that God is tempting me because God doesn't tempt anyone to evil, nor can he be tempted to evil. But everyone is tempted when they are lured and, and I think, what is the word that it's used there? That they are lured and enticed. That's, that's fishing language. So the Bible uses fishing language so the enemy knows how to lure you. He will put something on the hook that will draw you away from Christ. 
you know, make it look more attractive. And that's why you need to be able to identify those things. They're, they're different for all of us, but, uh, but every one of us are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. So a desire is this idea that says uh, within you, you might not be saying it consciously, but you're saying it subconsciously, if I have that, then my life has meaning. It could be marriage, it could be having kids, it could be a job, it could be money, it could be a car, it could be a home, it could be any number of things. It could be good things that have become ultimate things in your life. And so he begins to appeal to us based on our desire. And then it goes on, it says that when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, so we bite into that and go, yeah, if I just had that, I would be happy. And, uh, and then when uh, sin is full grown, it, it brings death. And so the enemy knows exactly what to put on the, on the hook for you. You know, whatever it is, he just kind of dangles it out in front of you and you get distracted from the most important thing in your life, which is Christ. You start chasing after that. You don't even know that you're doing it sometimes. And so take a look. This brings, obviously, immediately compromise. And let me define for you this idea of compromise. Um, the word evil kind of goes with compromise. Evil is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we're kind of mixing metaphors here. But that's based on Jeremiah 2.13. So if you want to define evil, if you want to define compromise, so you can kind of see this is what begins to take place. Covenant relationship turns to complacency, and then before long we've got this compromise, and compromise is evil. Evil is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water. Who's the fountain of living water? Jesus. So it's this exchange of the fountain of living water for broken cisterns. So this looks more attractive, what he's put out there on the hook, than Christ. And it's the suicidal exchange is what, really what it is. And, uh, and so it, what it does is it starts with unbelief. So if you can kind of get down into your heart, one of the reasons why we pursue evil, we pursue the path that's outside of what God's word has established is because we're convinced down deep inside that God's somehow holding out on me. So unbelief, pride, I know better than God, and then idolatry. We're going to substitute God for something else. We can't help but do that because we are created uh, as worshipers by nature. So you're gonna worship something. Something will be at the center of your life. And so that's how that works. So next point on your notes there is that idolatry is making a good thing in creation, like money, romance, children, uh, fitness, etc., into the ultimate source of our identity, security, and significance. Very subtle. And... Uh, so to be satisfied by the beauty of God does not come naturally to sinful people. By nature, we get more pleasure from God's gifts than from God himself. Nothing wrong with these gifts. It's just that uh, it's not that we love these gifts too much. It's just that we don't love God enough. We need to love him more, and it brings that balance to our lives. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. Because we even kind of justify ourselves when we pursue these things, these gifts from God over and above the, the gift giver. People do not drift toward holiness apart. In other words, you're not going to drift toward full devotion to Christ. It doesn't just happen. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. 
We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Let's continue reading verses 14 through 17. So we've got a cycle of decline and revival, covenant, complacency, compromise. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had, uh, had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. That's, that's key. So these, these idols are beating the heck out of them. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. This is the idea behind the book of Judges. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard, that's an interesting word, so it's given us descriptive language of sin, for they hoard after other gods and bow down to them. And the idea here is it's like coming home and finding your spouse in bed with another lover. That's the idea of that word. So God came home and found us in bed with another lover. We're, it's, um, we whore after other gods and bow down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they uh, did not do so. So, and in fact, I, I think it's actually even a little bit more than just, you know, I think we live in a culture and I think it's more than this picture of he hangs out there on the hook, something's going to attract us away from him. I think it's more complex and I believe that the world that they were living in was really complex, and so is our world. And I think it represents more of something like this. I think that not only do we live in a society that is God-ignoring, but it's also um, uh, idol-saturated. And let me see if, uh, if you can track with me here. And I, I think that this, is, this probably represents more of the world that they're living in and, uh, and the world that we live in. I mean, I got cars, hot cars, hot girls. Woohoo! You guys close your eyes. I got a little bling here. Ooh, I got some money. And I like to gamble from time to time, huh? And then you got, I couldn't get Nancy to drink a beer, so we just had to make a... Make up our own right here. That's, a, that's our beer. She doesn't drink. I don't either. But, and then, oh, oh, it doesn't hurt to add Jesus to that because actually, you know, a lot of churches in America, you can have all of your idols and still just add Jesus to the pile. Or it could be kind of religion. I think I had somebody give me this uh, for a, a wedding gift after I performed their wedding. That's odd. That's what I thought. Though it is on the dashboard of my car all the time. So, uh, it isn't really, I'm just kidding. So here's, so we're trying to see Christ 
And we've got all this stuff dangling in our face. This is, this is the world we live in. No wonder we can't see Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and finish the message like this. We'll pick it up in a little bit. So consequences, consequences. So that's what it means to live among idols. That's the title of the, the weekend's message, living among idols. I think we're saturated. We're just inundated. They're all around us. We can barely see the cross and see who Christ is. And here's the consequences. Counterfeit gods control us when we seek them. And that's what you have happening in verses 14 through 17. They control us when we seek them. So if I, if I find my identity in my work, guess what? I'm going to become a workaholic. If I find my identity in my kids, I'm going to be probably too permissive or too controlling, one or the other. I'm going to swing to one of these extremes. I'm either too permissive because I want my kids to be happy, or I'm too controlling because I don't want, they got to behave a certain way so that I can feel better about myself, or one or the other. It just, it runs to these extremes. I mean, you can put that with anything. Counterfeit gods control us when we seek them. They disappoint us when we get them because we weren't created to have anything other than God at the center of our lives. And then they devastate us when we lose them. That's why people are ready to put a bullet in their head. I've sat down with many people who were uh, ready to commit suicide. And typically it's because they lost their idol. It's gone. Life's over. And I'm trying to convince them, wait, 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 you don't put your identity in something that's temporal. You put it in some, someone who is eternal. <laughs> and you didn't do that. And so therefore, that's why you're so devastated. Help me, let me help you see him more clearly. And, um, and that's why in Exodus 23, he says there, part of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. There's no third option. You're either going to serve the living God or you're going to serve a false god. Because idols can't be removed, only replaced, because by nature we are worshipers. Something's going to be at the center of your life. One of the reasons why I'm a Christian today, because I recognize how I'm wired up and I realize, wow, the only way this thing works is to have Christ at the center of my life. Judges chapter 2, verse 3, we read it last week, that these idols become thorns and snares. Psalm 16, 4, it says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Now, this is another, next statement is what's been really helpful for me. You know you have a counterfeit God when you are inconsolably paralyzed, when it's threatened... So there's that inordinate anxiety. So if you have inordinate anxiety, you probably have built your life on an, uh, on, uh, an idol that's being threatened. Or bitter, so, so you have this inconsolable bitterness. And you know what? Let me just say something here. It's, it's so subtle. Some of you don't even know why you have such a negative attitude when certain people's names come up or certain situations. That's bitterness. And it's, it's attached to an idol. You need to identify what that is. You didn't get what you thought you deserved. You were entitled. And uh, you're bitter. And then, uh, obviously, depression. Setting aside all the physiological contributions, you know, our brain chemistry and other things like that, but uh, are depressed when it's lost. Listen to what uh, a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace said he was a novelist not long before his suicide. Obviously, he was working through these issues and couldn't get a grip on them. And he spoke these words to the 2005 graduating class at Kenyon College. This is what he says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what 
to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty um, and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing you, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. So we're worshipers by nature and they get a hold of our lives. Look at verse 18 of our text. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Here's the next step in this cycle of decline and revival. It's crying out to God. Crying out to God. So you've got covenant, complacency, compromise, consequences, and then you've got crying out to God. You begin to realize, wow, I need God. It blows the cover on what has always been true. We are desperate for God. True repentance isn't just sorrow for the pain sin has caused me, but it is sorrow for the pain sin has caused God as I turn from sin to God. So what, what draws me away from sin? What keeps me from chasing after all these things? This is just a short list too. What keeps me from chasing after all of these things? It tells us in Romans, Romans 2.4. Anybody know what Romans 2.4 says? It's the goodness of God that leads us to what? Repentance. Yeah, so it's the goodness of God. I begin to realize, wow, this isn't satisfying. None of these things really satisfy. Only you can satisfy. And, and you begin to think, wait a minute, why, why am I chasing after this? When, when you offer me fullness of life, so remember, it's the, it's the suicidal exchange of broken cisterns, or I'm sorry, the suicidal exchange of, of the fountain of living water for broken cisterns. So he's the fountain of living water and we chase after these things. That's, that's the essence of idolatry. It's loving anything more than we love Christ. And... Um, John, 1, uh, John 8, 1 talks about there's no condemnation. 1 John 1, 9 talks about the cleansing that comes. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 talks about that repentance. And so what it is, it is the sweet sorrow of a justified sinner. The sweet sorrow of a justified sinner. Let me give you a quote from last weekend's teaching. So wholehearted obedience, this is the last point of last weekend's teaching. Wholehearted obedience is taking sin seriously and resisting it like crazy because Jesus died for my sins. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me but he loved me so much he wanted to die for me, and so I take sin seriously. But when I fail, there's no condemnation or despair, Romans 8.1. My obedience is a way of saying thank you to God and of a way of, of becoming more and more like him. He's conforming my life more and more into his image. I'm experiencing more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life. But it's not the way of earning my way back to God. Repentance is not your way of earning your way back to God. So we're not talking about that whatsoever. It's just you have God, 
you just tend to prefer, prefer other things more than God. You're finding more desire in the things of creation as opposed to the creator. And you recognize that. That's why it becomes this, this sweet, this sweet, what did I say here? It is the sweet sorrow of a justified sinner. I'm justified. I stand right before God, but it's sweet sorrow. It's like, why did I chase after this stuff all the time? What's going on? Unbelief, pride, idolatry. I begin to look at the, what's going on within my own heart. Now let's wrap this up. Verses 19 all the way to the uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Here we go. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Now, why did he do this? The, the answer is in the next question. Why did he not drive out the enemies, verse 22, in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord? So he's going to test them. He's testing them. These idols are a test in our life as we work through these things. And so, in order to test Israel by them whether they will uh, take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left. Notice what he says again. To test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars. There's another keyword. So when you're going through text, you're trying to look for kind of key phrases. He keeps saying over and over again, test, and now he comes to the word war. Now, why, why test them? The answer is found in verse 2. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And then he goes through a list of the nations, and we jump to verse 4. They were for testing Israel. There it is again. To know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And then it goes through the list again. And then in verse 6, it says, and their daughters, they took up to themselves. So they, it almost seems as though they failed the test because they continued to spiral down and their daughters, they took up to themselves for wives and their own daughters. They gave to their sons and they served their gods. And so there's two tests that you're tested with each and every day. You know what the tests are? You need to know what the tests are, and I'll give you, you know, you need to know the answer to these tests, obviously. But the two tests are success and failure. How do you deal with success, the pleasures of life? How well do you deal with those? Because oftentimes, what do we do? When things are really going well in our life, we put God on the shelf. We pursue the pleasures. We have this false sense of security, and that's a test. And, and, and so success is a, the test of pleasure. Failure is the test of pain. And so we've got to learn to fight. We've got to learn to battle. We've got to fight from being deceived by the pleasures of life, thinking that they're more satisfying than Christ. And we have to fight from being disillusioned by the pain of life, thinking somehow God's not involved in my life. That's that disillusionment of the pain. And by the way, if success inflates you, failure is going to deflate you. I mean, just think about it. Um, my wife... 
our marriage, that was part of my idolatry, dealing with that. My kids, you know, the success of my kids. Um, this church, I learned early on, you know, when the church is really doing well, whoo, I noticed that I would kind of get inflated, but then when it wasn't doing well, I was deflated. And the Lord really began to deal with me, saying, hey, wait, 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 that's not your identity. Your identity's in, in me. And so this is, and then listen to me, uh, you got to get this. So if, if it inflates you, whatever it is, it will deflate you, and it means it's an idol. If, if success goes to your head, then failure is going to go to your heart, and it's going to devastate you. It's going to devastate you. Do you hear what I'm saying? So how do we deal with this? We've got to learn to fight covenant renewal. It is a fight for indescribable and indestructible joy in Christ so that I'm not overly attached to good days, success, or over, overwhelmed by the bad days, adversity. They're both tests. That's the reason why he goes through this and says over and over again, tests, so that we can know how to war. And I gave you the verses here, First uh, Timothy 6.12. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. So the fight of faith is to fight for your joy in Christ above anything else. To love him, to put your hope in him, to trust in him beyond your job, you know, your career, your marriage, or anything else like that. That way it'll, it'll help you in dealing with all of life. Idols can't be removed, they can only be replaced because we are worshipers by nature. Timothy, uh, Paul also said, I fought the good fight when he finished his life. Here's, here's something too, Matthew 24, 12 through 13. I need to read this because he's kind of talking about signs of the close, you know, signs of the end times, eschatology here. And this is what Jesus says. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This is what he's saying. This is the time we're living in. I know people who were one time fired up for Christ, but today are no longer fired up for him. This is eschatology. This is what's happening in the end times. People's love for God will grow cold, but listen to what he says. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Are you fighting every day for your delight in him? And Christ must become more beautiful to your imagination and more desirable to your heart than your idols through spiritual disciplines. And so this is what it should look like. It should actually look more like this. And it's behind you as you are captivated by the beauty and the glory of the cross. That as you fix your eyes on Jesus, he becomes more captivating, more desirable, more satisfying, and the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You guys tracking with me? So the more you, through spiritual disciplines, focus on him, and he becomes so amazing, then you're gonna be able to deal with the good days and the bad days. The good days and the bad days are just tests. You're gonna put God on the shelf through the good days? Are you gonna be disillusioned by the bad days and think that he's not working in your life? It's a test. Fight, fight, fight for your delight in him. Only he can satisfy the deep, deepest longings of our soul. Do you know him? Have you given your life to him? I would invite you this morning to confess faith in Jesus. Acknowledge your sin, believe that he died on the cross for your sins, and confess him as your savior and Lord. If you're our guest here with us this morning, thank you for being with us. I'd love the opportunity to, to meet you, give you a coin to get a free drink from our cafe. If you'd like to have prayer, feel free to come forward this morning. We'll have some leaders up here that will pray with you. Let's pray.
Father God, your Son, our Savior, is certainly more, more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or death could ever take away. Help us through spiritual disciplines to keep our hearts hot for you and away from this destructive spiritual decline of complacency, compromise, and consequences. Father, help us to, to recognize when our heart is being turned toward idols so that we can stop our heart and look to Jesus to give to us the very thing our heart wants from the idol. Teach us how to rejoice in Christ by filling our minds and our hearts up regularly with the beauty and the value of our Savior Jesus so that we, we find such deep satisfaction in him that we're able to release our grip on, on any temporal thing, any idol we think we can't live without. For our incomparable joy and your captivating glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Love you guys. Have a great week.